Please open your Bible or the Pew Bible up to Luke chapter 24. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's on page 1052. There's an old joke about a minister who would frequently and ostentatiously partway through his sermons always take his watch off and lay it on the pulpit. And the little boy leaned over to his mother and asked, what does it mean when the minister takes his watch off and lays it on the pulpit? And she answered, nothing. (laughs) Now, I'm telling you that because I'm at a bit of an impasse this morning and in an unusual situation. I went over my notes this morning, as I always do Sunday mornings, and I realized this has the potential to be a bit too long of a sermon or too shorter sermons. And so we'll find out when I get to point two, the end of point two, if it's a shorter sermon or a longer sermon. But uh, so bear with me. We're looking at the end of Luke, uh, Luke 24, and Luke narrates the end of his gospel after the resurrection all as one long Easter day. Begins in the morning with the women going to the tomb, finding it empty. Then in the afternoon, Jesus travels with his disciples on the road to Emmaus, uh, Cleopas and his friend. And then remember, they have dinner together. They run back up the road to Jerusalem, and that's where we pick up this morning. The very last few verses that we're going to read, 50 through 53, really jumps ahead to describe the ascension of Jesus. Uh, Luke knows that it didn't happen on the same day that he rose, because Luke tells us in the book of Acts, the very beginning of Acts, that it was 40 days later. And yet he's trying to make a point by putting it all together, that this is one long, glorious day that goes from the grave in the morning to, as it were, his ascension in heaven by the end of the day. But, but Luke, he's kind of playing with the time you see, you see there. Let's read this together. Luke 24, verses 36 through 53. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them. And he said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. This is God's word. Be to God. 
Well, in this passage here, as Jesus appears to his disciples, we see Jesus do four things. Four things to prepare his followers. Uh, uh, four things that are accomplished. Four things for the church. I'll tell you the four things, but as I've already alluded, we may only get to two of them this week. First, Jesus makes peace. Second, Jesus deals with doubts. Third, Jesus equips his followers. And finally, Jesus ascends to his throne. First, Jesus makes peace. Jesus makes peace. When he suddenly stands among his disciples, he greets them. Peace to you. Shalom l'ka. It's the common Middle Eastern greeting. Peace to you. And yet this standard greeting, hello, good day to you, it's loaded with new meaning after Jesus' death and resurrection. There's new depths to this greeting, peace to you. And that's why Paul and the other apostles begin all their letters, peace and grace to you. There's new profound truth. At Jesus' birth, you'll recall that the angels announced to the shepherds, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom God is pleased. Why peace among those with whom God is pleased? Because they say, in David's city, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, has been born. Well, now this Savior's work is complete. His mission has been fulfilled. He has died on the cross. He has risen again. And now he says, peace to you. The peace has been won. Now, peace is more than just the absence of conflict. In fact, uh, some of you may know what it feels like. There's no explicit conflict, but under the surface, there's all sorts of tension going on in a family or a business, that sort of setting. Peace is much more than that. In Luke chapter 7, there was a woman who was a notorious, well-known sinner. Uh, Luke doesn't tell us you know, how it was well-known that she was a sinner, but everybody knew it. Well, Jesus was invited to go to some Pharisee's house or a particular Pharisee's house for supper. And this woman comes into the house and anoints Jesus with expensive ointment. The Pharisees present are indignant. Why would he do such a thing? Or not he, why would she do such a thing? Why would she anoint Jesus with this expensive ointment? Well, Jesus astounds them even further by saying to her, your sins are forgiven. And they say, who can say sins are forgiven? Who does this guy think he is? And yet Jesus continues saying to this woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. For this woman, going in peace, having peace, means that her sins have been forgiven through her faith coming to Jesus, being saved. In the next chapter, Luke 8, a woman with chronic illness comes to Jesus. And we looked at this, uh, Mark's account of this a few weeks ago. Remember, she sneaks through the crowd and touches the hem of Jesus' cloak, and she's healed and thinks she can sneak away without being found out. But Jesus turns around and starts saying, who touched me? And he, she comes to him, and she falls to her feet in fear and trembling. She's afraid he's going to tell her off for touching him or something like that. And yet, what does he say to her? He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. This woman, from her chronic illness, she was impoverished. She'd spent all her money on doctors. Uh, Because of the nature of her illness, she was unable to go to the synagogue, to the temple. She was unclean. 
And yet for her, peace means wholeness, restored life, health being restored to the community. So Luke gives us these signposts pointing us what peace looks like. It's not just the absence of conflict. It's the forgiveness of sins. It's wholeness of life. It's restored life. Uh, it's, it's verdant, abundant, flourishing. Well, Jesus comes to his disciples and he says, peace to you. Now, the Savior was born not simply to bring an end to individual conflicts. Okay, you might say, I follow Jesus, and yet we still have fights in our house. Where is the peace? In fact, in Luke 12, Jesus warns his disciples, Do you think I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, rather division. And he explains to his followers that if you start following Jesus, that actually will bring division. Some of your old friends won't like it. There'll be a division between you and your old friends. Some members of your family won't like it. There'll even be divisions within families. And so at a superficial level, Jesus actually seems to create more conflict than he solves at that very superficial level. We see this as we've been tracking through Luke's gospel, right? Some of the Pharisees follow Jesus, but others are condemning him. And so we see his division between the Jews over how to respond to Jesus. So at a superficial level, that's not where the peace is, but rather he brings peace to this deep conflict to this, at a cosmic level. For our deep problem is a war between the human race and God himself. The humans have rebelled against God's authority. They've tried to cast it off, tried to set themselves up as their own authorities. But now Jesus has finally made peace between God and man. By his death and, re and resurrection, he has reconciled humanity to God. He's restored this relationship that was fractured in the garden. Like the notorious sinner, we have peace because our sins can be forgiven through faith in Jesus. Like this woman with a chronic illness, we have peace. We may still have physical and mental sickness. Indeed, I will reassure you, you will get sick. You will die. But our sickness, if our faith is in Christ, doesn't lead to disintegration, to social dislocation. In fact, Paul says, because there's peace between God and man, even death has lost its sting. There's nothing to fear even in death because God has made peace, or Jesus has made peace between God and man. So friends, I begin with this simple point, peace to you. If you've heard nothing else in this Easter series the last few weeks, I want you to hear this. Peace is on offer to you. The resurrected Jesus, speaking through his words, says, Peace to you. Come to me and be made well. Come to me, have your sins forgiven. The resurrected Christ has defeated death, and as we've heard from the psalm earlier today, come to set free those condemned to die. The first thing Jesus has done is made peace. That's the foundation for everything else he does for the church. Second, Jesus deals with doubts. He deals with doubts. The disciples' response, Jesus appears in their midst, their response is initially that they're startled. It's too much to take in. It's strange because the, past, the verse we opened with this morning in our call to worship, they've just been saying, 
right before Jesus appears, the Lord has risen indeed. Saying it's true, Jesus has risen. And yet when he, although they affirm it's true, now that he appears in their midst, they're startled, they're frightened. He appears in their midst declaring peace and they're believing, unbelieving, frightened and joyful all at once. It's like there's just too much emotion to bottle up. They don't know what to think. In fact, we see four distinct responses here, although they're all sort of mixed up, and, and we're going to look at them individually because I, it seems to me that here's, there's other possible responses, but here's at least four typical responses to this truth that the Lord has risen indeed and brought peace. First, in verse 37, it says that they were startled and frightened, and Jesus says, why are you troubled? They're disturbed. Why would they be frightened by the risen Christ? Well, if it's really true that Christ has risen again, it is, in a sense, frightening. It unsettles all of our sort of stable assumptions about the world. After all, what are the two things that are certain? Death and taxes. And yet here, one of those is coming untrue. It's unsettling. It sort of turns everything on its head if this is true. Maybe this is where you're at. You're hearing the news being proclaimed this morning that the Lord has risen indeed. And in your heart, you're thinking, if this is true, I am unsettled. The second response they have is a wrong theory. We see this in verse 37 as well. They thought they saw a spirit. Okay, Jesus appears in their midst, and what do they immediately respond? It's a ghost. Uh, we're going to look at next Sunday night in Mark, Jesus walking on the water. And that was their theory then too, is it's a ghost walking on the water. It's a bit of a weird theory. Why would you find a ghost easier to believe than that Christ resurrected? They come up with some sort of an alternative explanation. Again, this is something we fall into. Well, maybe there's some other, some other theory. Maybe what really happened is Jesus just passed out on the cross after being beaten, stabbed through his internal organs, nailed to a cross, hung in the elements for six hours. Maybe he just passed out and then was buried and then the rock was placed over it and then he laid there for three days bound up and then somehow moved the rock himself, overpowered the guards and came forth. Uh, you, you think I'm joking, but this is one of the sort of uh, skeptical theories that this is really what happened, the swoon theory. It's, it's preposterous if you stop to think about it, that someone this, you know, that's been beaten and hung on a cross and sits in a tomb for three days then comes up with the strength to move a rock on his own and come back. And yet, it's so frightening that we come up with these alternative theories. Third, Jesus says in verse 38, why are doubts arising in your hearts? They've said Jesus is risen, they've seen him, and yet now doubts arise. Friends, this is all too common even for disciples, for followers of Jesus. We believe Christ is risen, and yet doubts arise. Finally, perhaps most strangely, is in verse, uh, I wrote, verse 41. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? That's a strange idea. They disbelieve for joy and marveling. What's it saying? It's saying this is too good to be true. Okay, our, we've overcome our fears. We've gotten rid of our wrong theory. Even our doubts have been answered, and yet it's just too good to be true. They can't believe it. 
And friends, that might be you. To hear Christ has indeed risen from the dead and defeated death, that there is peace with God, that your sins can be forgiven, that you can be whole, it might all sound great, you want to believe it, and yet it is too good to be true. Well, what does Jesus do? We see the disciples' four responses. What does Jesus do? He deals with their doubts. He deals with their doubts. He doesn't scold them. He doesn't tell them off. You know, I'm going to go find some other disciples. You guys won't believe. Get some better disciples that will listen to me. No. He draws their doubts out into the open. Uh, Sometimes this is maybe what you see going on when you're talking about Jesus with a friend, that they have some doubts and yet they don't want to They don't want to make them explicit. He just draws them out into the open. He names what's going on. He says, you have doubts in your hearts. You're troubled. Let's talk about that. He addresses them. And how does he address them? Well, he provides, he he presents his body as evidence and he eats food in their presence. In Luke's sequel, Acts, the book of Acts in in verse 3, he says that Jesus presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs. It sounds like, you know, remember the story at the end of John that Thomas isn't present at this scene and he says, I'm not going to believe unless I touch for myself, unless I put my own hand, my finger in the holes in his hand, unless I put my hand in his side. And of course, Thomas says it in this blustering confidence because he doesn't believe it. And yet Jesus shows up and he says, here, here's my hands, here's my side. And yet Thomas in that story, he doesn't actually even touch him. He, He falls to his knees and believes. But it seems like apparently a number of disciples needed that sort of thing. They needed convincing. First, Jesus says to them, why, are you, why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and feet, that it is I myself. See with your own eyes, it's really me. The same Jesus who died, who you saw buried, it's me. And then he says, touch me and see. He's saying, feel for yourself, see, verify. I'm not a ghost. I have a real body. He says, spirits don't have flesh and bones that you see I have. And then while they're seeing, touching, filled with joy and yet not believing, Jesus asks this funny question. Is there anything around here to eat? I don't think he's saying, look, I'll eat something as a proof to you. I think it has more to do with the dynamics of being simply hungry after being in the grave for three days. The last time he ate was uh, Thursday night when he's arrested, and now it's Sunday evening. He's, uh, well, I guess he broke the bread and handed it to the disciples at Emmaus, but then he just disappears. So, you know, after all of that, he's hungry. He's ready to eat. And yet, although it's not offered, you know, it's not intended to be a proof, Luke cites it here because it certainly is proof. Ghosts don't eat fish. It's a proven fact, okay? Humans eat fish. Living beings eat fish, not ghosts. What kind of resurrected body does Jesus have then? This, this passage raises some questions. He's not a disembodied spirit. It's not go- Casper the friendly ghost floating around. He is physically resurrected. Bones and flesh, he eats food. But on the other hand, he is not simply a resuscitated body. You know, as if somehow through, um, you know, what do you call those paddles that you do on someone that had a heart attack to get their heart started again? It's not like he just had his heart restarted and the body gets up and walks around. 
Apparently, he can appear and disappear in a way that is unusual or sudden. And certainly, this body does not age and get sick and die. At his incarnation, when Jesus came into the world, God took on, a fle- took on flesh. He took on an earthly, physical body. But now at the resurrection, Jesus has a, if I can put it this way, heaven and earthly body. A body that belongs as much to heaven as it does to earth. In fact, in Ephesians 1, Paul says that Christ fulfilled God's plan to unite all things in himself, things in heaven and things on earth. His resurrected body, as it were, is a sign of that. It's this union of heaven and earth, both a physical body and yet a body that somehow belongs to heaven in a way that we don't fully understand. Uh, And when I say we don't fully understand, it's not just because we haven't read enough and someday we will understand. Uh, Certainly someday we'll understand, but only once we too have passed through death into the resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, one of Paul's longest chapters, he spends trying to explain this dynamic. And yet even there, it's, it's like, it's sort of like this and it's sort of like this. And if you think this way, you can kind of get your head around it. And yet it's a mystery beyond our comprehension, our full comprehension anyways, this heaven and earthly body. But even seeing and touching Jesus' body for themselves doesn't in itself produce faith. It's too good to be true. And I'm seeing on the clock now, we will almost certainly only have two points. So for those of you who are counting, this is, uh, we're, we're coming in towards the end here. It's too good to be true. And so we need to see how Jesus proceeds. He took the fish, he ate it. And then verses 44 and 45, he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. What the disciples need beyond just seeing and touching is revelation and illumination. Revelation and illumination are both works of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit inspires the prophets and apostles to write scripture. That's the revelation. But the Holy Spirit is also at work within our hearts Uh, to help us to see scripture, to understand it, to grasp it, and that's illumination. So there's both an external and internal part to this process. To believe Jesus' resurrection, it has to be set in the context both of his own ministry and teaching and of the Old Testament scriptures. Do you see in verse 44, he says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you. I was preparing you for this. I kept trying to teach you that this is what would happen. I told you it was necessary that I must suffer, necessary that I must die. I told you that death didn't stop my mission, but was indeed the culmination of my mission. It's why I came to die and so make peace between God and man. And I told you to look for me on the third day. So he's saying, look, everything I've taught you that for us Luke's recorded in the Gospels, it all should prepare us to make sense of what happens in this final week. These final three days. Then on the road to Emmaus, Jesus walked his disciples, or as on the road to Emmaus, Jesus again walks his disciples through the scriptures. Of course, at this point, the only scriptures are what we call the Old Testament. That's all they had for a Bible. And he explains to them that what has happened, 
fulfills all that came before. It's interesting the way that he refers to the scriptures. The law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms all must be fulfilled. It's at least interesting to me because I also teach Old Testament sometimes, and that's kind of my background. Uh, in the Hebrew Bible, the way the scriptures are ordered is in three sections. The law, or Torah, the prophets, and the writings. And Jesus seems to use that same threefold division here. The law of Moses, the Torah, the prophets, and the Psalms, which is the first book of the writings. He's saying everything you find there, from Genesis at the beginning to Second Chronicles in the Hebrew ordering, Malachi in the English ordering, all of it, it's pointing forward to something that needs fulfilled. He says, but it has all been accomplished. It's been fulfilled. It has been done. It is finished. The Torah must be obeyed, and Christ has perfectly obeyed it. He has kept all the law, not simply keeping the law like he didn't break it, but he actually fulfills it in a way that goes above and beyond through his generosity, through his self-giving. As Israel's Messiah, he comes to fulfill all the promises made in the prophets. In the old, the old uh, uh, Hebrew Bible, the prophets is Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, and then Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and all the minor prophets that we think of. Um, so some of those history books are prophets. And why? Because both the history books and the writing prophets point forward to the need for a righteous king who will lead God's people. David kind of gets close, but falls short. Solomon looks like he's going to be that king, and then disaster. And then from there, it kind of keeps going down that you have some high points. Josiah looks promising. Hezekiah looks promising. Could these be the promised king? But no, none of them are. Israel ends in exile at the end of 2 Kings. And then the prophets keep saying, there's going to be this king. There's going to be this king that comes to deliver his people, to bring peace. And finally, that is fulfilled. And then it's interesting to think that Christ also fulfills the Psalms. That's a bit weird. We think these are songs we sing in praise. And yet we see in Christ using the Psalms as his own prayers, a depth of communion between Christ, the incarnate God-man, and God the Father that all the Psalms point to, that they invite us to. As you pray through the Psalms, as we read them, as we sing them, we get tastes of what's there. And yet Christ has gotten to the depths of that. It reveals this relationship between the Son and the Father he brings fulfillment to the law, the prophet, and the psalm. So there's this external revelation given in God's word. But then verse 45 is the other piece of the puzzle. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Revelation without illumination is incomplete. It's insufficient simply to have knowledge of the facts of the Bible. As a sometimes Bible scholar, I know this all too well, that there are people who understand the Hebrew and Greek far better than I do, know more about the history than I do, and yet have no taste for it. They don't have any faith in it. They just say, yeah, that's just some old document that I know a bunch about. Simply knowing facts about the Bible is insufficient. Jonathan Edwards uses this illustration. You can know everything about honey. It's, uh, he wouldn't use this language, but you can know its chemical makeup. You can know how bees make honey. You can know how to harvest honey. Maybe you're even a beekeeper. You have a bunch of honey. You keep selling it. You know everything about honey. But if you haven't tasted it for yourself, there's a, there's a sort of intimate relationship with it that's missing. Okay, To be a chemist that knows all the chemical makeup of honey, but to have never tasted its sweetness for yourself, 
There's something missing. And that's what it's like to read Scripture without illumination. We can know everything about it, but we have to have a taste for it. Illumination is not new revelation. Okay, the Holy Spirit doesn't teach us new facts about God that weren't previously known, but rather it is a new grasp of Scripture, of what's written. It's a new love for what we find there. J.I. Packer says, Illumination uh, means that the Holy Spirit makes sin more repulsive and Christ more adorable. Sin more repulsive and Christ more adorable. As we read Scripture, the Holy Spirit applies it to us and we say, Oh, you know, I thought I had dealt with all my sin and now I'm realizing the way I talk to people is not lining up. There's something repulsive there that needs to be done away with. Oh, I dealt with that and now I'm finding that these attitudes I have are not right. Then you deal with that and then you're like, oh, this way that I look at, you know, look at people that there's, there's a little bit of like lust there that I didn't realize is there. That needs dealt with. And the, the, the Holy Spirit keeps illuminating that. It's like he's shining a flashlight on different parts of your heart, different corners. And that sin becomes repulsive. Say like, I'd rather throw up than do that again. And yet, on the other hand, it's not just negative. There's a positive side. The Holy Spirit makes Christ more adorable. I know that sounds a little bit like precious moments, kind of, a, you know, that sort of thing. And that's, that's not what Packer certainly means. He, I, I knew him personally. He was not a precious moments collector. I can, I can reassure you. But uh, uh, what he means is that we have a greater love for Christ. We see different aspects of his work, of his character, of his personality. And we have a, a desire to be more like him, to spend more time with him, to adore him. It's one thing I've been loving about going through the Mark series in the evening, and indeed this Luke series in the morning, is, is getting to spend time with Jesus' character all week long and think, I'm seeing new things here, new aspects of his personality I had not noticed before. Having this deeper grasp, this deeper love. Then the disciples believe. Jumping ahead to the end, in fact, we'll see when he ascends from them, they worship It's the first time in Luke's gospel. I'll come back to this next week. It's the first time in Luke's gospel anybody worships Jesus. You only worship God. They were taught that from birth. They were brought up. You worship God alone, the Lord your God. And yet now they're worshiping Jesus because they recognize in Jesus, God himself has been with them. They return to Jerusalem with great joy. They couldn't believe for joy, but now with illumination, their eyes being opened, being given revelation, it all makes sense. It clicks together. They're filled with great joy that leads them to boldly bless God in the temple. Can you imagine that? Jesus was in the temple and they tried to arrest him. And then they did arrest him. They put him to death. They go right back to the city that arrested him and put him to death. And they're in the middle of the temple, publicly worshiping Jesus and blessing God. And that's the end of all this that Christ makes peace with God and then he deals with our doubts so that we can glorify God, so that we can worship Jesus. Let us pray. Christ Jesus, we thank you that you came for us. All we like sheep have gone astray and yet you, the good shepherd, chased us down through the wild country and have brought us back, carried us on your shoulders like a good shepherd, indeed laid down your life to win us freedom. Thank you that you gave yourself as a sacrifice to make peace with God, that in you we can have peace with God. Thank you that we have forgiveness of sins, 
that we have wholeness, flourishing life. Lord, you see that many of us doubt in different ways. For some of us, we just have questions about what does the resurrection mean. For others of us, it's almost too good to be true that what we've done can be forgiven, that we can have life. By your Holy Spirit, be at work within us. Deal with our doubts. May the evidence convict us once again. May we see Christ's work in the context of Scripture as a whole and in his own teaching. By your Holy Spirit, be at work illuminating God's word for us, increasingly making sin repulsive and Christ adorable. Amen.